0: Welcome to More to Come, P.W. Comic World's weekly podcast on graphic novel and comics publishing. Uh, Once again, tonight we're recording at various locations around the metropolitan New York area. I'm Calvin Reed, senior news editor at Publishers Weekly, editor of P.W. Comics World, and editor of The Fanatic, P.W.'s twice a month comics and pop culture newsletter. Check us out online at publishersweekly.com/slash comics
1: And I'm Heidi McDonald. I'm the editor in chief of the Beat at ComicsBeat.com, and you can find us on Twitter at, at @PWComicsWorld. And I'm Kate
2: Simmons. I'm the podcast producer, and you can find us online on Tumblr at PWComicsWorld.tumblr.com.
0: And don't forget, you can subscribe to more to come on the Apple Podcast app, Google Podcasts, and on Stitcher, and on Facebook. We're at Facebook.com/slash PWComicsWorld.
1: And also don't forget that you can leave us a message or give us a rating. Let us know how we're doing. Please give us some feedback on, uh, how you're, how we're doing and when you listen because we love to hear from our listeners.
0: Come on, folks. Reach out and touch someone like us. <laughs> All right? Alright. This week on More to Come, TCAF, and when I say TCAF, I mean the Toronto Comic Arts Festival, it's back, and it's in person, folks, and undercover at NFT NYC. And the New York Times takes a look at diversity, excuse me, the lack of diversity mm-hmm. in publishing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, more sadly and more seriously, we're going to talk about in memoriam for the passing of two people, Tim Sale and Mike Pazziulo. Uh a publisher update. Uh, we're going to look at uh, DC, Disney, PRH, other things. And sunshine breaks through. Look at a groundbreaking comics editor in the book trade and um, a throwback kind of concept. OEL anime? (laughs) We'll talk about it when we get to it. All right. TCAF.
1: Yes, well, I was off to TCAF, um, Calvin, you skipped it this year, but uh, uh, I, yes. but, uh, you know, uh, well, Bridget Alverson, my roommate for the show, wrote a really excellent little concise write-up for Publishers yes. Weekly, and, uh, it really does cover a lot of it. And, you know, uh, the, the main number in there that it was about 70% of the capacity of past mm. TCAFs. And I had estimated that it was probably about two thirds the people, and uh, you know then I heard it was seventy percent so I was right on mm-hmm. but uh as as you found with mocha, it was just wonderful to have everybody back in person, sure, and mm-hmm. you know, we talked a couple of weeks ago about the gigantic uh pink cat controversy, <laughs> yes. and yes. you know aside from a couple of jokes here and there, there uh, from people, of course it turned out that TCAF wasn't ruined. It was turned yes. out that TCAF was still indie comics friendly and that TCAF mm. was still open to artists. Now, there might have been issues, uh, you know, along those lines, but uh, in general, it seemed to be a fairly... A uh, happy event. Very happy. In fact, a very happy event. You know, there was still, you know, one, th- I kept saying this, but one thing I didn't mm-hmm. quite understand until I talked to folks, you know, I did have a long talk with Peter Berkamo, with The Beguiling. Um, I did talk yeah. to mm-hmm. Miles Baker who runs the show. You know, Canada had a very, very, very long lockdown and Toronto mm-hmm. yes. was locked down longer than any city, uh, on, in, on earth. They had mm-hmm. the longest lockdown of any city. And so I, you know, I think some of the things that we were, you know, why is it taking so long it was just because, you know, their, their reentry into society has taken, sure. been a lot slower. Sure. Um, but yeah, I, I would, um, definitely recommend, uh, there, I think the main thing about it, I, I mean, I'm sure both of you felt this at, at Mocha was, um, you know, seeing tables for the first time and there's three mm. years worth of great books on them and you just don't <laughs> yes. even know what
0: to do. <laughs> yes. Well, yeah, I mean, and and just to to see, uh, you know, all the usual suspects out uh, about and doing what they do. I'm sure that had to be a big part of it. Though apparently there were a few missing uh, publishers at TCAP. Yeah, there were
1: several missing. I mean, Drawn and Quarterly hasn't gone in a long time. Um, Top Shelf Mm -hmm. was not there. Um, I'm pretty sure there were some others who weren't Mm. there um but you know the, most of the indie crowd uh, I, I there was a lot of people i didn't see to the closing party um uh-huh. and but uh you know secret acres was there on civilized i sure. mean Fantagraphics was there in fine sure. shape mm-hmm. um uh you know some of the manga the manga publisher was not there chromatic press i believe they always go mm-hmm. and um so you know not everybody made it but you know i i would say it was very much a changing the guard show in so many ways just um people uh, you know, there were, I mean, you know, Michael DeForge was there, obviously. Um, yeah, Seth, well, uh, Seth a, a was mainstay, there. Seth was there. Yeah, you know, and mm. Seth just, just got the Order de Chevalier from the French oh. consulate there. And, um, because, uh, who, you know, who could be better? He's not a, a knight. He is a chevalier. So, yeah. uh, good for All him. Right. But, you know, they were there. I saw Chester Brown outside and, you know, the old, the, some of the old crew was there. Sure. I mean, if you call Michael DeForge
0: old, but, um, <laughs> well, he's not really old, but of course, he is a mainstay. Of, well,
1: he uh, started so young. Let's be yeah. fair. He started when mm-hmm. he was just like, you know, very early 20s. So he has been around quite a while. But, you know, it's a lot of new people like Lee Lai <laughs> and uh, Connor Steckshelte and, um, you know, Kat Summers. And, oh, and of
0: course, Annie Koyama wasn't there. That's right. You know, which I mean, and I, and I say that only because of the deep respect we have for Annie Koyama. In Koyama Press, yeah. Apparently, she was
1: there in person, but I did not see her. Mm -hmm.
0: Uh, And according to Bridges' stories, I mean, yeah, as you said, all the the mainstays were there: uh, uh, Joe Olman, Gene Woodall, uh, Hoche Anderson. Apparently, was there. um, So, um, I mean, it it, it, yes, it just looked like um, you know we're on the road back to you know the world that we used to know.
1: Yes. Absolutely. And um uh, I would say that uh, you know, it was a rebuilding year, but they are definitely keeping on with it. But yeah, I, I will say here for the podcast that um, you know, there might be more changes coming. They might have to move mm-hmm. out of the library, you know. Uh-huh. I mean the t- mm-hmm. the hotel has changed. One thing
2: uh that I'd like to go back to that you brought up a minute ago, Calvin and Heidi, was about um What old means in comic terms. I mean, I've, one thing I've really noticed is that generations in comic creation don't neatly line up to chronological age of the people involved. I think it really, like what quote unquote generation you are really has a lot to do with when you got into it. So there are some people who are several more generations along than people a, biological generation older
1: Mm, yeah absolutely yep and uh uh, yeah yeah for sure i mean you know michael deforge was very very young when he started when he started cartooning and um but you know he's been around well over a decade right and there's a
0: flexibility and age flexibility in the kind of materials that comics people read you know from what's supposedly for younger people and what may not be so
1: for sure and
2: and furthermore where I'm going with this is as far as generations of, of comics is, is the comic market, the comic landscape that someone new to comics comes into changes hugely every 10 years. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. so, sure. and people don't always get into it at a young age. Often we have a number of, as, as witness people who get recruited by, say, uh, DC or Marvel, people who are, are print writers who get recruited in at like older ages, but they're quote unquote new because they're new to the scene and they come into a very different scene completely.
1: Yep. Mm
0: -hmm. Cool.
1: And, and I, you know, there is definitely TCAF is a really fantastic place to kind of see this evolving because it is very much, you know, ground, ground level. And, you know, a lot of web cartoonists are there. A lot of manga influenced artists Mm -hmm. are there. And, um, you know, it was, but, but we're in the, we're in the great, Transition right now, mm-hmm. yeah. you know we're in the great and, transition to the world after the pandemic, and yeah, you know, and-,
0: and 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 just on a related note, I mean, TCAF is a comics art festival, as as Heidi has uh, defined them. They're very different from the mega festivals, but they are. The show is broken down into real definable parts. There's children's programs. There's adult programming. Uh, in the past. There was actually even independent gaming development. Uh-huh. Uh, so, it, though, it has this ability to be both, um, you know, uh, to have the appeal and the breakdown of a larger show. Without the feeling of being overwhelmed and, tra- and trampled that the the giant media cons can have. Mm,
1: yeah, you know, but I mean, there's animators there. There's, mm, yeah. you know, I think it was Guillermo del Toro
0: one, one year. <laughs> yeah. You know, he yeah. wandered
1: into the library. Uh And,
0: um, you know. I also think people discovered the show uh who maybe have spent a lot of more time at say comic con or new york comic con and' yeah. they're thrilled by it, yeah, now, I will
1: say this year scaled back obviously, and yeah. so yeah. instead of having you know they had their library day, but it was virtual, and mm-hmm. um the uh they they instead had um a academic conference. Which I did go to the keynote speech, it was by a guy named Benjamin Wu, and this is something that I, I think all three of us, especially Kate, would be very interested in because his topic was really fandom and communities and just, you know, how communities organize around different kinds of fandom, something that I'm st- Totally fascinated by so mm-hmm. so there. I did not have time to see the other papers, but I do believe some of them are online. But uh, you know, very interesting topic. And then they had Word Balloon Academy, which kind of they made a little bit more um accessible because the library conference used to be just in uh, you know, in the library, in the in mm-hmm. the panel rooms at the library. And this year they held Word Balloon Academy there instead. And, you know, there was a very good panel among Canadian publishers, which included mm. Drona Quarterly and mm-hmm. um uh, conundrum, of course. And then Renegade Arts Press, because normally it, in past mm-hmm. times, it would have been Koyama, but they're not around anymore. So it was mm-hmm. Renegade Arts, which actually has been around a long time. But you know, they were very open about how they all get grants from the Canadian government, you know, right. and, and, uh, you know, I mean, Drawn and Quarterly gets huge grants, but then they have to be audited, you know, to get, to continue mm-hmm. getting the bigger the grant, the more the audit, the bigger the audit. So. <laughs> yeah. Well,
0: that kind of makes sense. And, with public and- money. I mean, it, it
2: makes perfect sense, but it's also something that does not play to the strengths of comic publishers, who are famously disorganized financially.
1: Yes, well, you got to be organized to get
2: your grant
0: money. Who are uh, very often dealing with provocative or edgy or you know uncommercial material. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. Uh, and doing it, you know, to, in some cases with public funds. So, yeah,
1: yeah but I. I, which,
0: I who would create, of course, a firestorm of, like, of idiocy here in the U.S.
1: Oh, yeah. Off. Well, <laughs> um, uh, there was a lot, you know, obviously, Drawn and Quarterly, um, is fantastic, um, with the books that they put out. And mm-hmm. even though they don't set up, they do send their authors. Um, but, you mm-hmm. know, I'm looking, you know, John Patrick Green, best-selling mm-hmm. author of The Investigators was there. Yeah, on uh, the Children's Side, sure. Yeah, Joe Ryu, who also does kids' books was there. And, you know, all mm-hmm. of that was super well, represented and uh just the 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 diversity of comics was definitely on display it was really uh just as wonderful as as always it was a little different and uh and as, oh so I, I started to say before we had our technical difficulties that you know it did move from the hotel and uh, mm-hmm. some people asked me what I thought of the hotel and I said you know the old hotel was amazing because I say there's yes. two kinds of shows you know there's the there's the pack for the day show and then there's the uh, run back to your hotel and drop off your book show and yes. this changed from a pa a drop off your books at the hotel day even though it was around the corner when it wasn't next door it was still you know a 10 minute walk it
0: was a very easy it was a very easy walk <laughs> very
1: easy and, and thi- commute <laughs> yeah and this hotel was probably only you know 10 minutes further but it was a lot mm. further than 10 minutes so you know you couldn't yeah, right. just run back you couldn't just run back uh, although on young street that's you know y o n g e is pronounced mm-hmm, young yeah. in case you're wondering uh, you know, Kate, I would strongly, if you ever were to be able to come to TCAF, I know you would enjoy it so much because TCAF is just famous for its street food. And so, yeah. ah. so this street, you know, this young street, which is like, you know, one of the high streets, the entire, it was about a kilometer. Uh, this entire one kilometer walk was just lined with every kind of street food, mostly Asian street food so but i mean you know one had the japanese egg sandwiches the other had the current chinese (laughs) crepes and then there was the the roti stand and then there was 25 different kinds of tea and i I mean i would go and eat one and then i'd walk and then i'd be like oh man i wish i'd gotten that so i i I literally gained (laughs) five pounds in toronto i literally (laughs) because the food was so good (laughs) yes well
0: i i am really uh i mean believe me i i'm just not a I'm kind of uh, not in a big travel mode these days, but really, I love TCAF. I would have loved to have been there. Uh, I expect to go back again. Mm. Um, uh, But yes, this is still a show that um you fall in love with
1: you, you, yes, you know, a bunch of people went for the first time like Karen Green, Ivanka oh, uh, right? Yes, you know, I librarian her and her uh post oh, oh yeah, she, she I think she liked it, you know. And then yes, Ivanka yes. Hahnenberger, our good friend. Yes. Um and uh you know, a few other people who were just you know, we went for the first time and they they all yeah. fell yeah. in love. And
0: who we have been like hyping the show to them I for know. for multiple years. I know. I know. So
1: Um, there
0: you go. Yeah. All right. Yep. There you go. All right. So So, next year in Toronto.
1: Yes, for sure. And Kate, like I said, if you ever travel, you would so love this show. So I would, you know, um, recommend it highly. Now – uh, then I got back and, you know, we are doing this by Skype, uh, because I, I feel a little crappy. And so just to be on the say, I'm not, I've tested myself for COVID and so far I'm negative, but, um, just under the weather. But if I caught COVID, I'll tell you where I caught it. I didn't catch it at TCAP. I caught it because I snuck into an NFT NYC. So, ah. which is going on this week, which is uh, apparently it's been held in some form for four years. So which Ooh. predates the nft boom of last week uh last week uh last <laughs> month well you know might as well be last well, uh, week the, wasn't pand- that
0: the, yeah, we'll pandemic <laughs> time
1: um but this show was as far from decaf as you could be it was taking place at the marriott marquee at times square i have never uh. seen that hotel t- uh, take over like every square inch of it was covered with ads you know but madonna played a party for hmm. really for- yes um there was the ape ape fest. I was oh, no. try to see if I could sneak in, but you needed a ticket. And you also and the way that you got a ticket was if you owned a board ape yacht club, uh, you know have to own one of the NFTs, then you could apply for a ticket. But they had like, you know, Hiem was playing one night. LCD yeah. sound system was so sounds
0: incredibly so, exclusive.
1: It, so if you're you yeah, did, and that's probably the reason why
2: they're they're trying to get people to buy their apes in the first place.
0: Yeah.
1: Hey, you can totally if you
2: go to New York and pay all this money for a ticket and you can get into this free party that only costs the tens of thousands of dollars <laughs> for your ape. Oh,
1: Kate, it's only 4F, you know. Um I will say um I'm probably going to do a longer write up about this for the beat cuz I did take a lot of photos and um there was a lot of entrepreneurial spirit there, definitely. Very mm-hmm. busy. It was packed. It was packed. Cool. You know, a lot of people, nonstop chatter everywhere, chatter, 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 um, you know, free free stuff. I got, you know, free food, open bar all day. The ticket cost $800. So um, oh. I was, you know, somebody gave me their badge. I did not pay a penny, but, you know, free drink all, all over the place. Um and I got well, a well f- at
2: eight hundred dollars. I should
1: hope so. Yes, He'll give you a free drink. <laughs> yes, at and eight hundred dollars I- they should give you a free
2: computer. Yes,
1: <laughs> and then I got a bucket hat. Uh, should I, if we were visual right now, which are not, I would wear it so you could see it. But um, uh, but. My biggest takeaway was just that this space, everywhere you go, cause there was like little, you know, not booths, but like tables, like little, little setups, right? Like a high top was a booth. I don't know, some, um, you know, display is that, uh, this space is totally taken over by, um, really horrible sort of mascotty, animal drawings, like board, oh, no. but I mean like everywhere you go, like the, you know, they had like, a uh, um, actually I can look at this. Like, yeah. like they had a, a digital ad that was a uh, flashing, you know, digital ads that people had advertised. And I, I just was, you know, uh, uh let's Yo. see. So there was the gutter cats. There was the no, creatures. There was to the moon meerkat, uh, there was the, who, there was the stoner cats, there was crypto bat, there was, you know, psycho fairies.
2: Yeah, so is it about was the the bad M-
1: art, uh, trying
2: to pretend to be ironically bad?
0: Well, I mean, I I mean what I'm curious about is, is this stuff good for artists? I mean, that's what the pitch is, that somehow or other NFTs are helping artists.
1: Well, let me tell you what I learned. While I was mm-hmm. there, which I can't believe, I can't believe this isn't a bigger story. That you know, the actual Board Ape Yacht Club, the the lead artist of the Board Ape Yacht Club, uh, is a woman. I believe she's from China. Her name she goes by the name of Seneca. She was hired, work for hire. Hmm. And oh, no. she was the lead. There was other artists. But so, ba- you know, you could order your ape. You could order the elements. But, like, basically mm. all of the actual freaking artists who actually draw this stuff mm. or work for hire. And so she mm. doesn't get any royalties. She doesn't mm. get any – um she doesn't have any stake in this company. I mean, mm. I want to swear – you know, mm. out of anger because it's like just this is this, the same old crap, same
0: old crap. Sounds that way. And, but yet, I mean, when I talk with people in the comics business about uh, all the you know the people that are generating NFTs and why it's a good idea, this is what we continually hear that even something like Zest World, I mean, that the, the new comics platform, um, the new subscription based platform. I mean, they pitch themselves as helping artists create NFTs because this is going to give them some kind of value going forward. And I'm just trying to figure out how. <laughs>
2: well, I mean, I think it depends. I think if you are an artist who does their own NFT or who mm-hmm. is not hired in a work for hire method, then I suppose you could make significant money. But mm-hmm. like I think anybody who is going to buy an NFT, take a look and make sure it's not work for hire. Take a look and make sure the artist does get the money because it it does not go without saying.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's sort of uh, ironic, sadly ironic that, you know, um, these like cartoon animal digital assets are kind of being made on the same work for hire basis that, you know, we're trying to get away from in the, in the uh, analog.
1: It's
2: absolutely, well, I mean, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah i mean it's the the cheapest common denominator version of the n f t you know we go straight from uh basically bragging rights for a piece of art that took a lot of time and takes a lot of love and exists on its own right to just uh, you know jumble mix of of eight parts which you stick in your hand in and pull out an ape from the generator and you don't really pay the creator of the generator that well.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now... You know, Seneca is creating her own line of artwork now that is very similar to Borde, but has like some, you know, it's an ape, but it looks a bit different. And you know, she does mm. her own digital art, and it's 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 interesting. You know, she's a very good artist. I'll, I'll yeah. go out on a limb and say that. And you know, I like I said, I this this story about this guy like uh, broke earlier in the year, and then people, you know, passed it on to me. At mm. this point, I'm just like, you know, I I. I'm amazed that the outrage, um, you know, of people doesn't, hasn't gotten around to the Seneca story, but maybe it's because she's still in the space. Maybe it's because she's still doing NFTs that, you know, she falls under the, under the, um, you know, forbidden zone. But, um, well, you know.
2: Well, I mean, I, I think maybe some of it is that people don't think of the bored apes as having an artist. huh Huh? Because I, her I don't, art, I sure don't. <laughs> yeah, because her art was making the component parts for the ape generator, mm-hmm. and because people just think about the generator, they just assume all of it was was coughed up by a computer somewhere, not understanding that those component parts had a human behind them.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, we well, get. You know, I I I went. You know, like I say, I got my badge from somebody, and you know, I was walking around with with someone who does uh, work in the in the nft space you know among other places and you know they were all caught up in the excitement of it all and and i could understand you know i mean i'm i'm uh you know you could either be so rich you don't care about money or so poor you don't care about money and i'm so poor i don't care about money obviously and you, you know if you were looking at the money that had been thrown around at this conference you would be impressed but uh you know i'm looking there's a story up on vice magazine which i haven't read but i'm eager to read it and it says uh NFT NYC attendees see opportunity in crypto chaos. So, you know, I mean, the way people were talking, you would think that the crypto market was sound as a pound, you know. Ah. So, um, you know. Well, I
2: I mean, they already invested in this convention. They can't, you know, uninvest. So, therefore, you know, maybe if we keep saying that
1: business is booming, business will boom again. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, I will say I wish I had felt better and had gone back today because uh, there was definitely a lot more stories to uncover uh, hmm. at the show. But it was packed. It was expensive as heck. And <laughs> it was, you know, I mean, they had like um, venues all over. They had radi- panels at Radio City Music Hall. Really?
0: Yes, yeah. all yeah. day,
1: all day on Tuesday. <laughs> That's talk not about, even that close to the Marriott. Talk yeah. about
0: satellite venues. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, All right. Yeah. Well, I suspect there'll be more information to come on NFTs. That uh, This market is with us, whether we like it or not.
1: Uh, they are here to stay, but, uh, you okay. know, don't
0: believe the hype. Yes. They're, they're, yes. Yeah. All right. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, okay. Well, you know what? Uh, uh, um, the New York Times this week published a really fascinating article, a deep dive into the business that we're in. Uh, specifically, though, into the book trade. It was, it, excuse me. <clears throat> it was a, a look at the diversity in publishing, and I will say, a long-running joke among uh, you know among some of us in the business. Uh, would turn that around to so the lack of diversity <laughs> in the publishing industry. But this was a fascinating article. And I, when I say deep dive, I mean a really deep dive, a real deep examination of not just, and I don't want to, that doesn't sound right, into the, the, the industry's troubling problem with, um, serving the entire American, uh, uh, marketplace for reading. Um, but it also actually served another purpose to illuminate the actually the mysterious machinations of publishing, how book publishing works. And I think most people don't know beyond you know the occasional over glamorized version that you see of an agents going out to glamorous lunches with authors. So this was a this was a look at really ultimately how the American book publishing uh, acts as a gatekeeper to reading. An industry that, like many of our industries, are completely dominated by white men, um, and uh, therefore, have the final word on the kinds of books that ultimately are released in the marketplace. It focused uh, its examination. I should say the the writer is uh, um, uh, Marcela Valdez, um, who actually was a work that publishes weekly quite a in, in the early two thousands. She, um, she worked on a, uh, a Spanish-language book review. Oh! Sub-
1: oh.
0: Criticas. Criticas! She was also a book review. She was also a book review editor in the PW. You know,
1: I was going to say I vaguely yeah. remembered her, and then when I Nora. first started at Publishers Weekly, I think she sat right across from me. <laughs> I, I think she did. Yeah, yeah. As a matter of fact,
0: <laughs> now I remember. I, I remember her vaguely. I remember who she worked for. Adriana Lopez, far better who she was the kind of the editor of, of Criticas. Uh-huh. But but uh, Marcella also worked in the book review department at PW. In any event, she has gone on to be a New York Times staff. Writer, she actually contacted me quite a while ago, uh, and I, you know, I'm quoted in the article. Um, but I also connected con- connected her with some other people in in the book publishing industry. She used as a focus Lisa Lucas, who oh. uh, uh, is the, the former uh, executive director of the National Book Foundation, which which is the organizing entity around the National Book Awards, the premier American uh, uh, literary uh, um, uh, awards. And has more, more recently was signed, you know, in many ways in the wake of the George Floyd, uh, murder and protest. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was named to head a Pantheon in Shocking, two storied imprints, you know, at uh, Penguin Random House. Uh, and it looked through her. She's also an incredibly dynamic personality. Uh, you can't help but, uh, like Lisa and be blown away by her at the same time and if you read this article you'll see why and we're bringing this up because i think we're all in this moment we've talked about it on this podcast of how the comic book industry um and now of course in the book industry the graphic novel component of it are 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 dealing with diversity are bringing in more kinds of comics in more forms for more readers than ever before. There's a new generation of readers who are looking for different things to read in addition to these genres that we that we love and that have brought us to comics like superheroes, but also bringing in uh, genre comics, bringing in new readers, and bringing in a new breed of creator as well. So yes. I, I, well, I bring this up. Excuse me, go on. I bring this up because this article uh, really touches on everything that we've talked about on this podcast. And it also reaches out And gives a lot of love to the comics uh, medium as well. I'm sorry, go on. Well,
2: I would like to push back on that a little because I don't think Mm. it's a matter of bringing in. I think Mm -hmm. it's a matter of pushing in. You know, that Mm. there's a lot of, of, you know, it's not like, oh, you know, the establishment graciously (laughs) went on on Easter egg hunt for the rare Mm. and exotic non-white, (laughs) non-cis male creator. (laughs) It's that creators out there... Through the magic of the uh, do-it-yourself, self-published, internet-published, convention-published universe of comics, I mean, that's the beauty of comics, is that it's not astroturfed. It really is from the ground up. Mm -hmm. There you go. Sure. You know, I mean, some of these things found success outside of the traditional comic industry. First, and then the publishing industry, thankfully, is starting to catch up.
0: Yeah, absolutely, yeah, absolutely. And that's really what this article is about: is when is this? When is this, the mainstream of American publishing going to catch up? And it, it is just as you said, because really the people are forcing their way and making them pay attention. So, absolutely, it's always a bit—it's always a question of of the grassroots taking power. Yes, absolutely, so yep, absolutely, absolutely the case. But anyway, I'm just saying that to recognize. Go to this article; it's a well worth the read. It's a deep dive. It is not a short article. But of what most interesting, it really ends with the with the reporter and Lisa Lucas taking a, a trip to a, a I think a, a, a Skylight Books in L.A., talking with um uh the 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 sales uh the salesperson there about. What's new in comics? And and they're talking about Ben Passmore. And they're talking about Jordan Crane and Anders Nielsen. And it's just delightful. I mean, it's one part of a long article. But I think that's what plays into the things that we talk about on this show all the time. Yeah,
1: absolutely. And, you know, Pantheon is a publisher of some of the most important graphic novels of the last 20, 20 years. Heroic. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And, yeah. Um, you know, Lisa Lucas is very well well equipped to continue that, you know, continue the publishing. So, uh, you yes, know, Gengora, apparently. yeah, Gengora Tagame's book came out. uh Actually, they just put that out, right?
0: Yeah, yeah. As a matter of fact, apparently she worked at Desert Island for a little bit. Yes, it did mention yes, that. Yes. So, <laughs> back in so the she, day, yeah,
1: she is of the clan. She's yeah, of the tribe. Go.
0: So, um, check
1: it out. Yeah,
0: um, more, you know, diversity in publishing. The New York Times, uh, and shout out to, uh, Marcella Valdez.
1: Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's all our jobs. It really is all our jobs to not stand in the way and to, uh, just create a more diverse and equitable worldscape, you know, industry yeah. in all ways. Um, well, uh, we have sad news. Uh, you know, this has been, you know, Kate doesn't let me swear, but it's been a incredibly crappy, um. Yeah. And horrible year for uh, losing people. So we lost a couple people. Um. Tim Sale, the artist, died yeah. last week. Uh. Best known as the artist on Batman: The Long Halloween, Superman for yes. seasons, Spider-Man Blue. He had a real um collaboration with Jeff Loeb, and they turned out especially Batman: The Long Halloween. That definitely influenced mm-hmm. um the Batman movie that came out earlier this year and he was a hell of a guy he was really just one of the nicest people you never meet and just an amazing 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 artist yeah and um he was only 66 and um you know there was some warning my understanding is that he had an illness uh that was in the hospital and they knew that he wouldn't be coming out but uh you know it was announced that he was very ill and so he got to You know, everybody tweeted and Facebooked, uh, you know, how much they cared about him and he got to hear those before he passed on. So that's, that's, um, you know, very nice and, uh, sad, but,
0: um, but very sad. Yeah.
1: Yeah. But at least he, you know, he knew, he knew that he was loved Mm -hmm. and that's important. Yes. Yes. And
0: the tributes, of course, are, are really, um, inspirational. Yes. the, The love that was poured out
1: yeah he him. was really really loved mm-hmm. um also marvel executive mike Pashulo died and mm-hmm. he was the senior vp of television marketing and promotion and uh you know most people don't know mike i mean i knew mike from back in the day when he had just started at marvel and mm-hmm. uh I hung out with some of the people. Uh, So, you know, I hung out with Mike, but I hadn't hung out with him in a long time. But he was loved. This man was so loved by everybody who knew him. And he was very instrumental to Marvel. He did their booths at Comic-Con, but he was very Mm -hmm. much in charge of, you know, their presence at events and a lot of their marketing. And, in fact, when Marvel had some kind of a rough patch a few years ago. You, you know, actually, when mm. Axel Alonso left and C.B. Sabolsky came on, uh I know Mike kind of got called back to take a hand in things, and he really helped – uh, smooth over some of those things. And he was really great. He was just a really great, unsung. I mean, you know, he was, yeah. he was very much behind the scenes, but everybody who knew him knew how hard he worked and what a great guy he was. So, and he was only 50 years old. Really, really, wow. really tragic that, um, wow. really tragic death. So yeah, and, um, hug your loved ones.
0: Yeah, very sad to hear.
1: So, uh, but meanwhile, yes. uh, some moves in comics. Uh, let's see, what do we got here? Well, moving, yeah, so DC has completed their move to the Frank Gary building, and it is open plan, and uh, my understanding is that maybe the only person who has a desk is, uh, Jim Lee at this point, but, uh, they don't have a desk for human resources, they will quickly learn that you must have a office for human resources, <laughs> so that just shows you how, what, um, dimwits they are who devised- I,
2: I, 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 don't understand how anyone could miss that human resources needs an office, a really well soundproofed office. You would think. Like, yeah.
0: You would so. think. So.
1: Well, they are learn. And, yeah. you know, especially at DC, because the, the human resources gets called on a lot. <laughs> 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 yeah. Um no. and then uh, Calvin, you wrote a story, but you know, uh listen. Uh, but they are back in the office. That's kind of the the main headline of that is that uh, you know after two and a half, well, almost two and a half years, they are going back into the office, but only one third at a time. But you know, I saw some social sure. media posts from people who were happy to see their coworkers after two years. So, um, you know, hopefully moving onward and upward there at DC. Mm-hmm. So we'll see. Um. Now, but Calvin, you had some distribution news this week.
0: Yes, yeah. yeah. I actually did not write the story for PW this time because, uh, what, we, you know, obviously what we're, what raised our eyebrows, of course, was Marvel moving its book trade distribution, uh, to, uh, Penguin Random House uh, Publisher Services away from the Hachette Book Group, uh, uh combining its direct market distribution now with this uh book trade distribution but this was a, a story that really involved disney publishing worldwide the you know the mammoth umbrella uh, entity over the over it all so actually my boss Jim Millett, wrote the story but you know this this is a big story anyway you look at it um you know hachette has kind of lost a major distribution client and they have been trying to grow their distribution side for many years and they're still a formidable book trade dis- distributor, as well as being a formidable uh, major part of the uh, of New York City uh, trade publishing. Uh, but this is something that we have been you know, looking at previously and wondering what was going to happen, and the other shoes finally dropped. So uh, PRH will represent Marvel in both the direct market uh, and in the book trade. Mm-hmm. All so the graphic you- novels and book books. Yeah, yes, yeah, sorry, mm-hmm. go on.
2: Sorry, sorry, I didn't realize you were fish. No. Uh so why do you think PRH was the winning contestant?
0: Uh because they're like the best distributor on the planet.
1: Yeah, and also you know when Marvel sent its periodicals to uh Penguin Random House um last year there was a lot of talk about why they didn't do bookstores as well which was with Hachette as Calvin mentioned mm-hmm. and uh, during my own research uh, apparently a previous regime at DC Comics because well, they've been with PRH for the book trade for a long time but yes. they had some kind of clause in their contract that PRH could not distribute Marvel and you know this was some kind of anti you know fear of, of you know, compound competition or Marvel drowning them out or something. And mm. I would have to say that was probably the work of a long gone regime at, uh, DC, yes. uh, cough, cough, Paul Levitz and Bob Wayne, cough, mm. cough. And so apparently nobody really cares about that anymore.
0: Yeah. No, yeah, yeah, no. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, it, 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 I mean, uh, Whatever you think of, of PRH, I mean, they are really a formidable distribution engine, and um, it, it doesn't surprise me that this, you know, is happening. I mean, um, and of course, they have shown themselves to be, you know, formidable in the comics market as well.
1: Well, so. you know, Graham McMillan had. A, his newsletter, which I don't know if you guys read it. It actually is quite good, but it doesn't hmm. seem to get as much reach as I, it should. But, uh, when he was reporting on this story, he pointed out something that was run on the beat in Brian Hibbs, uh, annual book scan report that a Marvel title did not show up in the book scan top graphic novels until number 980. Hmm. They did not have a book in the top 10. Top 50, top 100, 200, 300, 400, 500, not barely in the top 1000. So mm. that might be why they switched distributions.
0: Yes, yeah. yeah. Well, I'm sure that the numbers never lie.
1: Yeah, exactly. So, mm. um, yeah. And so, then,
0: uh, yeah, yeah. So well, it's going to be interesting to see, uh, now i am my interest goes back to the direct market. I mean, right now, uh, PRH only does floppies for Marvel. I mean, though they also distribute other major uh, American dis- uh, independent comics publishers. So. Uh,
1: Calvin, they do. I do IDW too, don't they?
0: They do indeed. Uh, they do Dark Horse.
1: Yeah, but they do right? IDW's floppies. Uh, uh,
0: didn't they, oh, you know what? I'm confused. Did that just start?
1: Yes, it just started.
0: Very recently, I mm-hmm. guess I slipped my mind. So um, there you have it. I mean, I, I, you know, I, I will keep, wa- we'll keep watching this space.
1: Um. Also, uh, uh, Conan the Barbarian is on the move. Uh, Kate, did you have that story? I did. So, <clears throat> Conan the Barbarian
2: has kind of an unusual situation because he's hopped from publisher to publisher. He's had many incarnations. And, um, you know, he was with Dark Horse and then with Marvel and now being transferred to a totally different publisher. I mean, I guess barbarians just can't settle down.
0: <laughs> well, He's a nomad, huh?
2: <laughs> um, but I have to say part of what makes it interesting is that i I got to say these are not what I would call like high profile publishers for such a major major character and property um this should be interesting
1: well i mean titan is actually i mean they're top 10 in the direct market you know yeah, they don't yeah. always get the the props for it um yeah. Yeah. Well, i mean
2: titan i i guess maybe it's because i'm
1: an american and
2: titan is bigger in britain but i think of Titan as the people who tend to put out the lazier adaptations as opposed to original work so much. Mm. And Conan has really had a wonderful history of very original comics, of like really top notch things that don't feel like they're just like a Star Wars tie-in novel, you know? Mm. And so, I mean, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it'll be amazing. But it was a bit of a shock to me to go from Dark Horse to Marvel to Titan because it feels like
1: a step down. Well, one thing you gotta understand about Conan is that it's owned by this licensing company and yeah. they, uh, drive a hard bargain. And so uh, I've, I'm sure I've said this on this. Uh, podcast many times before, but, um, I don't think Marvel is particularly interested in doing licensed comics. They don't even do their own license. They don't even do yeah. their own kids comics. They, they yeah. license things out. So, I uh, I think, and, uh, did you hear what I just said? Marvel did not even have a comic in the top 1000, you know, mm-hmm. one comic in the top 1000 of the graphic novels. So, you know, uh, it's quite possible that sales were not what they hoped. And, uh, so they went to a, a different a different uh, company and i'll say i think conan fits right in titan's wheelhouse so it's right right in there and because you they know, do do a lot of licensed books yeah i'd have to agree with you but licensed yes
2: exactly books. yeah um it's just i don't know i mean i guess maybe i'm being a comic stomp. of course i'm being a comic snob. this is a comic <laughs> podcast that's okay but uh <laughs> But Conan has a long and storied history of truly excellent top-notch comics. I mean, the Conan run recently at Dark Horse was amazing. Mm. So, to go from a, a more artistic um, original comic perspective publisher to one that kind of is more of a tie-in feels like sure that you could do better. But, you know, I mean, if you can't
1: market it, if you don't market it, then you you snooze, you lose. Yeah. You know, I didn't have a chance to cover the story because I was coming back from TCAF, but I'm actually reading the PR right now. Um, and Titan actually also is putting out a line of Conan novels and art books. So yeah,
0: that's, I think that's what they do.
1: Yeah, I think that's probably yeah. probably just made sense. And
0: I mean, I did a big profile of them. I think back in uh, 2016. I mean, um, you know, uh, uh, with uh, talking with Nick Landau and his wife Vivian Chung, who are the owners and directors. I mean, they publish hundreds of books. Mm-hmm. They, yeah. um, they, they, the U.S. market is their major market. Yeah. They're a British publisher but they're in a u.s market facing uh publishing house they do now now Kate is right they do a vast majority of tie-ins and and I don't know the level of of all the quality but they have amazing licenses from from uh from Doctor who to everybody else they do all kinds of pop culture books yeah pop culture comics as well um this is their this is their wheelhouse
2: uh-huh. oh I know so, this is their wheelhouse yeah. I'm just saying that Titan, and perhaps I'm being unfair, but my experience with Titan is extruded tie-in comic product, like so many Doctor Who comics that I've. You know, I like the co- I like Doctor Who. I I like comics. I pick it up, and there's just something deeply off. I am interested in some license. I think, oh, this could make it make an interesting comic. I pick it up from Titan, and I mean, it, if you look at any one page or any one panel, it looks fine, but it all just feels fine, oh. <laughs> uh, like it's meant to sit on a shelf, not like it's meant for the passion of reading. But that that could be my own personal prejudice. I mean, listeners, please email in, tell us your favorite comic, your Titan comics that really stand up as works of art. Um, you know, I I I want to be convinced.
0: There you go. Okay. All right. Um uh more to come on that, no doubt. Um okay, folks. Well you know what? We had a treat in uh it a a great story that went out in The Fanatic uh most recently. A story by uh Rob Salkowitz. And this was about a figure in trade book publishing that I certainly didn't know anything about, but I was really happy to find out more about her. And it is Linda Sunshine. You have to love her name. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the title of the piece is Linda Sunshine, Groundbreaking Book Trade Comics Editor. And it's the story of uh, a young editor starting in the 1970s who brought out such books as Superman from the 1930s to the 1970s. Batman from the 30's to the '70s, and The Origin of Marvel Comics. These are hardcover collections of classic comics. It's some of the first times this kinds of pub- this kind of publishing was being done in the book trade. They were huge successes, and she was basically one of the advance guard editors uh, of the world of book trade comics that we're living in today. Um, the books I mentioned, they first made their appearance in the 1970s, and if you look at the story, which is at publisherswiki.com slash comics, um, you, you know, uh, there's great stories about her cold-calling uh, Carmen Infantino at DC Comics and um, trying to convince him because, as she said, I had this idea to do a hardcover book about Superman. No one had done it before. And DC was incredibly skeptical. So this is just a great look back at really some of the early beginnings of comics in the book trade.
1: Wow, cool. I had never heard of this person. Me Um, neither. (laughs) Another secret of comics. Wow, I love it. Yeah.
0: I mean, she also did hardcover collections of of DC War comics, um, uh, 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 romance comics um it really is uh you know the the best of dc science fiction comics uh it really is uh extraordinary i didn't know anything about it. i knew nothing about it. and it's also very interesting origins the, the origins of marvel comics are, are obviously came under some uh, criticism of course stanley was well, those were, this was a time stanley was was making somewhat unsubstantiated claims about who created what at marvel uh, so this did become fairly controversial as uh as Linda says in the article, but you know what uh he was far more knowledgeable obviously about this and he was the publisher I would had to license this material from so uh, yeah but check it out PublishersWeekly dot com slash comics
1: um you know um, tangent um Calvin have you seen those penguin marvel books yet?
0: Uh, yes, in fact, we have a story coming up, an interview with the editor of the Penguin Cla- Marvel Penguin Classes, that will probably be in the next Fanatic.
1: Oh wow, okay. Yeah, so, I haven't yes. seen them yet, but I keep hearing that they're awesome.
0: They are awesome. I've seen uh, PDFs of them. Who's,
1: who's making that noise? Who's
0: making that noise? Kate, you okay?
2: I'm, I'm trying to plug my, my, uh, microphone back in because, uh, my voice dropped out again. Oh.
0: Oh,
1: uh, I plugged it back in and I'm gonna
2: tell it to, to...
1: Okay, let's, we let's, hear, we let's can start. Hear you. Yeah, we can yeah. hear you. Yeah, yeah. We let's, can hear you. let's start okay. over again from where I asked you uh, about the tangent, okay? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Calvin, uh, yeah. it's a little bit of a tangent, but have you seen those Penguin Classics collections of Marvel Comics yet?
0: Yes, I have seen them. I've actually seen PDFs of them, and it, and now look, these are the stories that I read as a kid. Oh. Uh, really brilliantly recolored and printed. I've seen PDFs, and we're going to have a story about them with uh, an interview with uh, the overall editor of the series uh, by Bridget Alveson. So probably in the very next uh, Fanatic newsletter, you can, awesome. you can read That's that. That's fantastic.
1: Yes. I mean, I haven't seen them yet, but I keep hearing that they're awesome. So I'm um, um, I need to get I need to get a hold of those. Um, yeah, I think they, I they might have an email incredible. somewhere. I mean,
0: you can um, read, I'm, and I'm rereading these incredible uh, Ditko stories, Jack Kirby stories, because um, um, he's doing. I think there's it's the Black Panther. um I forget. There's three. Well, there's of them definitely Spider Man.
1: Really, I think there's Spider Man, Black Panther, yeah. and maybe yeah. FF or something. But um, you know, I've said, I've been saying for a decade or more. That if you want a license to print money, just start putting out a library of Marvel collected comics from their vast library in a cute matching set. I think you will do very well with it. And keep it in print. Keep it in yeah, print. And, and, and let's and remember wait, organize before, it some wait. way.
2: Also organize it in some way that makes sense. Yes. Marvel has so many different versions of the same title, often within like two months of each other. It can be almost impossible for someone who's not an expert to figure out which one comes after which.
0: Well, let's remember these books also come with really incredible essays. I think, uh, Gene Yang is doing one of them. Uh, so they've got great essays as the, as the penguin classics do. And let's remember also you, when you're included in the line of Penguin, penguin classes, this, this, this is kind of considered the canonical, the entry into the right. canon of, of, of English literature. Um, and I can't think of anything more appropriate for this, these classic works of Jack Kirby and Steve Ditko and Stan Lee, uh, 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 to be in this august company yeah. of the great works of, of Western literature. So they're coming to a bookstore near you.
1: Yeah, very good. And, um, finally, Kate, I believe, yeah. Uh, speaking of August, um I believe there an, an, an a old a long-term argument has been broached yet again.
0: Yeah, in the anime world.
1: Ah, yes. So, listeners, if you're
2: new to comics, manga, or anime, welcome. Welcome
1: <laughs> to
2: the 457th round. Of a very old argument, which has played out in such places as your local comic book store, your local anime convention, uh, your local trivia contest, where people say, no fair, that doesn't count, and, uh pretty much any time a teenager rolls their eyes because their parent got the wrong kind of thing or called it the wrong kind of thing. (laughs)
0: Yes.
2: (laughs) It is time-honored, and it's back. So, with Netflix as the flag-bearer, but not alone in this, there's yet another wave of original animated series that are calling themselves anime but they're not actually Japanese. Oh, dear. Or they're partly Japanese. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it's yeah, like, yeah. It's <laughs> like if, if you look at it, it's kind of like a a, a mix of a variety <laughs> of different nationalities working on which is fine for something mm-hmm. to be an international product. But when the original idea and story is from say, Poland, in the case of The Witcher, and maybe the art design was in Japan, but the scripting was done in America, and the actual animating took place in Korea, to then go, yes, this is totally anime, and pushing it as exactly the same kind of product as something created entirely or 90% in Japan, Eyebrows get raised, mm. um, and eyebrows have been raised yet again, so there's there's been a lot more hybridization because, one, everyone's working from home, so it makes it more tempting to have someone work from home in a cheaper country, um, and also, um, you know, just with international streaming services, the wonderful thing about an animated series, other than the fact that people love anime, is that it's very, very easy to dub into many, many languages because they're animated. (laughs) So Slash Film has put out yet another article. I mean, not yet another for them, but yet another in general article on this very topic. So the example brought out is um, the animated project, Cyberpunk Edge Runner based on the video game. So the creators working on the art are Japanese, but the creators working on the scripting, the English language scripters are listed above the Japanese script writers Uh and are credited as showrunner and screen story. And so... The question is, you know, when you look at things like that, who's actually in charge here? Whose sensibilities are in charge here? Is this actually a Japanese sensibility? Or is it a European or American creating something that they think is a Japanese sensibility and feeding it back? Or is it an organic, uh, natural, friendly hybrid of the two? It, It definitely leads to question. Um, so like, for example, there's going to be a, a anime film uh, made of Lord of the Rings. Well, not Lord of the Rings as such, but a prequel. Um, and while the art staff is Japanese, the writers are all English language. All of yeah. them. Um You know, is that anime? Right? Or Castlevania is a English language adaptation of a Japanese video game set in Europe, <laughs> um, and the animation is done in Texas. So is that anime? Mm, is it? Uh, ah, yeah. That is a difficult question. What are your thoughts?
0: Hmm. Yeah, this is, this is interesting. I mean, obviously, the, the, this echoes the the the, uh, the the long ago controversies around original English language manga <clears throat> in the in the early 2000s, mid 2000s. Um, uh, you know, um, I, I I I think there's a the, there's somewhat of a difference now. I mean, I don't really see as much. You know, when you, when we look, when we look at companies that have evolved to this day that were making, uh, a manga like Seven Seas, um, I, I don't see people objecting to it so much as they did to some other companies. I mean, that may have have something to do with quality, because Seven Seas seems to does really high quality manga, not necessarily, uh, in Japan or with Japanese creators. Um, you know, but the other thing that's kind of interesting, and this is kind of a random fact around this, is that as I talk with a younger generation of people about manga, they call it anime.
1: Mm, yeah, yeah.
2: Well, talk- I I don't know that it's a younger generation, Calvin, so much mm-hmm. as it is uh, people who are not hardcore, like part of the fan world, which I don't mean they don't love it as much, mm. but which I mean – They came to it through streaming on the internet. They didn't come to it through the back room of a comic shop. Mm -hmm. So they – you know, anime is what you see on television. Anime is your gateway drug. Mm -hmm. None of the quote-unquote normal people in your life have even heard of manga, though they may have heard of anime. You know – uh, I I think it may be a
0: mainstreaming thing. Well, I well I think it is. Yeah. yeah I mean, I, I was I was in. I've been in. Uh, you know, I, I go to Barnes and Noble and to get my manga because their 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 selection has become insane, um, and I'm steadily saying manga to this guy who just wants to talk to me, young guy, and he's looking at what I'm buying and he's talking about what he's buying, and I say manga, but he says anime. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, I you know I think. Uh, I, I mean, I, I think people know there is printed anime. Uh, yes, you know, it, it might not be yeah. everybody, uh, on the face of the earth, but I, I don't think, I don't think it's not mainstream anymore that people read manga either. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. you know, uh, but, but I, I mean, I,
2: I think that it, it is mainstream, but that maybe some of the mainstream people reading manga are not, uh, coming to the culture well, from I, the same place they used yeah. to. Yeah, so I,
0: therefore think she, they're I think they'd be they right name. about that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely.
1: Now, I, I want to actually, there's a story we didn't have on our list, um, which was, I don't, did you guys see the Miles Morales store controversy? As to answer Kate's question of whether, you know, you consider this anime if it's made in Texas. Um, you know. Oh, the, yes,
0: I did see that. Yeah, yes, you know, sorry, they did this. The
1: what if, um, what if Miles Morales came Thor? Uh, it was yes. written by somebody, uh, named, uh, Ye- Yehudi, Mercado, Yehudi Mercado, who was Jewish yeah. and, um, uh, Latino. Yeah. And, um, it just had some of the worst dialogue since the 70s. Um, yeah, I, just, I've, I've, I mean, it's just unbelievable. Like, you know, I read just,
0: the comic too. Yeah. Yeah. I,
1: it just had some of the most, like, hackneyed crap. Uh, just what you would write if you was, uh, you know, I'm trying to find one of the things because it's just. Well, you know, so it was a
0: very right. superficial. I mean, I, yeah, I haven't just read. Jargon,
1: what just jargon. Just jargon, right?
0: I haven't read What If in years. I mean, uh, I mean, a yeah, hundred years ago wildly. when I read it, these were, these were to me parodies. And this was, I I assume, intended to be a parody. Yeah, but I, um, well,
1: but it the, but was the. the most,
0: but the, superficial I, use of the culture uh, yes. to it, I mean, recreate says, a supposedly uh hip hop version of yes, Thor. Yes, Yes, that uh, was just, it, it was pretty cringy. Um and the wrath of the internet came upon it.
1: Yes. And uh, and uh Yehudi Makata was forced to apologize and yes. uh, as well he should have. And uh but you know I've done
0: really good children's books, by the way.
1: Right. But I mean I'm just pointing out, you know, Uh, uh, Latino and Jewish, I mean, he is a minority, you know, he is diverse, but but he's not necessarily of the culture. And so I just, you know, I think there are some things about anime that is produced in Japan that is really impossible to replicate elsewhere.
2: Right. I mean, I think, I think some of the difference between some of this stuff and previous generations of OEL quote unquote manga was that these do have some part of their creation in Japan just only a chinese chunk mm-hmm. oel original english language quote unquote manga doesn't yeah and and i, I don't want anyone to say to think that i am saying these are bad books yeah uh, mm. the long tradition of quote unquote oel manga i think it's a a nomenclature thing right many yeah. times these are beautiful wonderful books that i loved when they came out I love to this day. These are very good creators. These are good books. But I don't think I would call them manga. I think I would call them graphic novels that are manga influenced, which is a good thing and totally fine. Uh, I'm not like, oh, no, they're culturally appropriating. They shouldn't make this comic. No, they're awesome comics. I just think it's a matter of what do you decide to call it and where do you
1: say the line is? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, I'm sure there are going to be more to come on that argument also. There's going to be <laughs> more to come for, on all of this. That's for, for sure. sure. <laughs> no, I meant
2: on on that note, um, yet again, there is going to be another live-action U.S. manga adaptation. Oh, boy. So, Justin Lin who is of asian extraction but is an american is going to be doing a one punch man movie <laughs> uh, i i'm i'm so thrilled i'm not thrilled i'm not thrilled at all i maybe maybe this will be the miracle that pulls it off but i mean
0: well, it's not going to be whitewashed, is it?
1: Yeah, is it going to be whitewashed? Well, I don't know, but it's nice. being made in America, so we'll see. So uh, I do think we are just about out of time. Uh So thank you for joining us. Thank you for listening Uh to us, loyal listeners. And on that note, there will be more to come.
0: Well, I
2: mean, and on that note, um,
1: thank you have... for joining us this no, week.
2: No, no, no. I wasn't going to say that note. We should go okay. away. Uh, actually, uh, okay. Different, different kind of on that note. I know. I know. We have a tradition, but I wasn't actually doing that tradition. Uh,
0: oops.
1: You're Kate, back. You did it. Yes. Yeah. Yay. Amazing. We have master technology.